Hey everyone, welcome to Stories from the Influencer Economy. I'm Ryan Williams. This is a podcast in which I talk to makers, creators, and entrepreneurs launching the next big things in media. Before we get started into the show, I want to remind everyone I'm excited to say I have a free How to Launch Your Podcast guidebook. It's a tip sheet for launching and marketing your podcast. So please email me, ryan at influencereconomy.com if you'd like the free guidebook. It's a playbook for how to make content around your podcast, market it, book guests, and a quick tip sheet for starting a show. Feel free to reach out to me, ryan at influencereconomy.com or hit me up at Ryan J. Will on Twitter. And if you're listening on iTunes, please subscribe and would love it if you left a review. Hey everyone, welcome back to Stories from the Influencer Economy. This is Ryan Williams. Each week I talk to a maker, creator, or entrepreneur launching the next big thing online. Really excited today for my guest, Brian Alvarez. Brian, welcome. Thanks for having me. How's it going? Very good. So uh, excited to have you on the show for a myriad of reasons. You're an OG podcaster radio host. And I'm joking before the call, I was saying that you're the hardest working man in the podcast and radio business. But I do a lot of them. And your focus is wrestling and MMA. Is your biggest show Figure Four Daily and the Figure Four brand and website? Is that your 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 main time constraint? Yeah, I, I gave them all a lot of different names just to kind of differentiate them because I talk different things on different shows. I have different co-hosts on different shows. So I guess the biggest shows would probably be Wrestling Observer Radio, which is the podcast that I do with Dave Meltzer. And the Wrestling Observer Live show is over the air, Sirius Satellite Radio, Sports Byline USA Radio Network. So I guess in terms of reach, it would be Wrestling Observer Live. And you're a former pro wrestler as well. That's right. The first pro wrestler I've had on the show. I've had athletes, a lot of writers, podcasters, but you're the first pro wrestler. What was your finishing move? I used a senton bomb and a super kick. Can you explain the senton bomb? I've never had that happen to myself. <laughs> For those of you that uh, have ever seen Jeff Hardy, when he would go to the top rope and he would jump off and do like a swan dive and then land back first on the guy, I used that one because I was a gymnast and I thought it looked really cool and... I did that one for a while until eventually my back was hurting, and that's not exactly the best move to be doing every single day when your back is hurting. So then I used the super kick, which is much more low impact. You modified your finishing move? Oh, yeah. And what's your favorite finishing move in general? Like I'm personally a fan of the figure four leg lock. I used the figure four. You did? That was the, uh, that was the name of my newsletter as well because of uh, Ric Flair. So uh, I did like the, uh, the figure four leg lock. That's my favorite finisher. I don't know if I have a favorite finisher. So I, used to, uh, I used to figure for leg lock my younger brother. Really? Uh, Michael, who started, you know, inside the square circle wrestling. So, and it was always, uh, you know, he would, he would, <laughs> you know, ask out of it immediately. I one time used a figure four leg lock on a friend of mine in a jujitsu match. I had always wanted to see if it really worked, and we were grappling, and he was a brand new white belt, and all of a sudden, there were his legs right there, and I thought, I'm going to try this thing right here. He'll never let me do it, but I'm going to try. I spun around and put on the figure four leg lock, and he tapped, so I can confirm that it really works. I have, I have honest to God, legitimately submitted one man with the figure four leg lock. Never again, I'm sure, but I got it one time. Greg the Hammer Valentine would have been proud. That's right. And Ric Flair. And Ric Flair, yeah. It's a great segue, actually, because we're going to talk about how you have put a figure four leg lock into the podcasting and radio world. Because you uh, you have all these shows, you're you know very much a prominent figure in the wrestling industry as far as a podcaster goes. And the first question I have is, when you were a wrestler or when you were younger, did you ever imagine that you would have a radio show? Was it something that you were always interested in? When I was probably 18, 19 years old, so right around the time that I started the newsletter, I was listening to Art Bell all the time. He was my uh, favorite radio show host. I listened to this show every single day. I loved this show. And ever since I was young, the only things that I've cared about a lot were wrestling and radio and also, I wanted to have my own business because my dad had his own business. He had a fence company, which he still has to this day. And, wh and where, so, where was this growing up? 
right here, Bothell, Washington. Okay. So those were like the three things that I wanted to do. And if you ever read any business books, which I was reading a lot of in my late teens, they'll always tell you, you know, try and find a business that's something that you love. And so I was always looking at various things that I wanted to do. And I chose to write because I love to write. I wanted to write and I wrote a wrestling newsletter. And uh, later I ended up getting into a wrestling radio show. So really, the whole idea was I want to try and find things that I love that I can turn into a business. And, and I managed to tie all of those things together. I didn't know how, but I ended up with a wrestling radio show and a wrestling newsletter. So it all did work together. But yeah, I always, I loved radio. I loved wrestling and I loved writing. And that was about it. And luckily I found a way to make all of those things work. Uh, that's fantastic. I work from home as I'm sure you do. And so sure. my wife works from home as well. Uh, what, what's it like running a media enterprise from home? I imagine your worlds come together a lot. Like you find yourself working around the clock. Are you able to detach yourself and take hours out of your day that you're not actually going to be hosting a show or preparing for one? Yeah, I, I think the biggest the biggest difference from someone who does not work at home is because I'm covering wrestling and mixed martial arts, my hours are just whatever they are. I can't say, oh, I'm going to work from uh, 8 a.m. to 5 p.m. That would never fly. You know, Raw Monday Night Raw is the biggest show, and it airs here, uh, 5 Pacific, and I'm usually teaching on Monday. So I got to come home Monday night. I got to watch Raw. It's three hours long, and then I got to do a podcast afterwards. So I'm usually doing that show with Dave Meltzer at like 1 a.m. Pacific. And which show and is so that? This is the Monday night show, Wrestling Observer And you Radio. do it right after Raw Oh, ends. yeah, Monday nights. And so, and there's Saturdays if there's a UFC. I mean, I got to watch the UFC show. I got to wait till Dave's ready. Sometimes that show, I've done that show at 2.30 a.m. Pacific before on a Saturday night. So it's not like I work Monday through Friday. I get the weekends off to do whatever. That doesn't happen. It's working whenever I need to work. It's doing a show whenever I need to do a show. I have, in the last two weeks, added... The Wrestling Observer Live Show, the Sports Byline USA, the Satellite Radio Over the Air Show. And that's noon Pacific every day. So that actually is something now that is on a schedule, which I never used to have before. And I kind of like it because now I'm committed every day at noon. I have to do this show. I get ready to do it. I do it. When it's over, I'm done for a while. I, I kind of like it. But in terms of the podcasting, it's it's whenever it needs to be done. I'm on call 24-7 if something Good, bad, terrible happens in this business. I got to be ready to do a show. And how does that affect your your friendships and the relationships? You know, with your if you're dating someone or you're you're together with your family, like how how does that affect it that you're sort of always on on the call, waiting waiting for something to happen that's unpredictable? Well, my wife works at home too. She runs a nonprofit, and so we're all we're always at home. So it's not like, you know, because I'm on call and maybe she's got a job somewhere and we never see each other and then she comes home and, and I have to always be on call. So we see each other an awful lot. And uh, I'm trying, but what I've been trying to do in the last two years is I don't want this entire website to be completely dependent on me and Dave. Right. And so I've been doing a lot of work in, in setting other people up. I've got like my whole radio studio here. I'm trying to upgrade it and then send my old stuff to another host. And so if need be, he can do shows with Dave or he can step in if I'm not around. I went to Hawaii for two weeks, a couple of weeks ago, and uh, Mike Sempervivi stepped in for me for most of the shows. So I still did things when I was on vacation, but it wasn't like the first time I went on vacation for my honeymoon. I was doing two shows a day during my honeymoon. The, where was it? Uh, Hawaii. So you were on your honeymoon and how, I mean, how does that go over? You know, you're, I guess your well, wife, your wife knew what she was signing up for. <laughs> because I, I tried to really like cram everything into a few hours a day. And so I would, I would cram everything, do a show, and then we'd go have fun. And then I'd come home, cram everything, do a show, and then we'd have fun. So I was still able to have, I mean, she wasn't ready to divorce me on my honeymoon. Right. But it was certainly much easier to have somebody else that could be doing stuff for two weeks while I was gone. And I could do a little bit of work, but mostly just enjoy the honeymoon. 
And you'll always have some people that are upset because of change. Why is Mike doing the shows? Blah, 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 blah. But in general, it worked out great. And I'm trying to keep that up and, and find other ways to allow myself to not work 24-7. So, so delegating? Is that yes. Yeah, I hear you. I'm a I'm a very much a featherweight compared to you. I've only I've had a podcast for one year, and I've done 40 episodes. Just celebrated our anniversary, you know, in the last few weeks. And so for me, it was very hard to even have someone edit the shows that wasn't myself. And delegating people to actually cut up the audio, I felt like it was my baby. I had to control it, and in the end, it's my name on the line. Sure. And that if no one likes the show, it's going to fall on me. And I don't want it to have another person that's actually hurting me or maybe helping me. So for me, it was hard to actually give up. And I've noticed for a lot of startups I've worked for as a founder, people have trouble delegating because they don't want to see it go down the tubes because they've put like you're putting your honeymoon on the line here and your first days of matrimony. So at the end, how do you delegate? I have just been trying to find ways to make sure that I do the most important stuff that I need to do, and I delegate things that aren't as important to other people. Uh, there was a there was a time where I was just trying to do everything, every single thing that needs to be done. I tried to do, and eventually I figured out okay, it's it's basically the eighty twenty principle. Right. I, I was mostly just thinking, okay, what do I, Brian Alvarez, like really need to do? And what do I not need to do? Right. And I sat down and I, I, I not only wrote a list of things that I needed to do, but then I went through and I wrote, what do I want to do? What do I not like doing every day? What would I rather, what would I prefer to delegate to somebody else so that I had more time and energy to devote to the things that I wanted to do? So the few things that actually were really important for me to do, I would not only be doing them, but I could do them better. And that's what I've been trying to do now for the past two years. And there's still things that I do that really they're probably a waste of time to have me do them. But it has certainly gotten a lot better. I feel like all of the things that I'm doing, I'm doing a lot better. And and uh, and I'm, I'm delegating things that, that uh, I mean... Our daily update, for example, it, it, it's a look at all of the news and wrestling and mixed martial arts. Why do I have to do that? I mean, there, there's plenty of people. Uh, I've, got a, I've got a guy, David Bixenspan, and he's now doing most of the newsletter. And he's doing it way better than I was doing it. I, I am trying to have no ego in terms of who's writing the newsletter. Does it have to be me? I don't care. Is, is, if the newsletter is good, great. And, and he is doing a good job because he can devote more time to it. He's a good writer. And so even though I started the newsletter and Figure Four Weekly was always my newsletter, I pretty much just handed over the newsletter because I know he can do a good job and I am more valuable doing the radio stuff here. So that, that's really, that's the biggest change I've, I've made in the past year is just delegating and trying to pay more attention to the things that I need to do and do the best. So when you were doing the, the newsletter, and this was back in the late 90s, was there a moment that was an aha moment when you felt like audio content was going to become a bigger uh, mainstream thing on the web that people weren't just going to read? Because you were early in radio and then early in podcasting. And when was the moment when you felt like you wanted to transition and, and put more time into the audio? The very first audio I did was one of those old 900 numbers. And there was, I did a 900 number because all of the wrestling newsletters were doing it. Wait, so you call and get, yeah. you would, would you, you do you it call live? This number and well, what I would do was I would call in and I would basically record like a voicemail, but I had like a 30 minute limit. So I would go on there and I would record a news update, like a solo news update. And then once it was recorded, people could call and listen to it and they would have to pay 99 cents a minute which is very expensive. For those right. of you that listen to podcasts or anything like that, imagine if you had to call a phone number and pay 99 cents a minute to listen to this. It's preposterous, but people did it. So Dave had one and Wade you, Keller had one. Can you explain uh, Dave to the audience? The people Dave Meltzer is, is I mean, if, if there is a pioneer of wrestling journalism, it's Dave Meltzer. He's been writing the Wrestling Observer Newsletter since 1983, 82, in the form it's in now. 
And he was actually writing newsletters since I think 1971 about wrestling when he was 11, I think. And he is like, everything, whenever you go online and you read inside scoops on pro wrestling, uh, there is a 95% chance they come from Dave, his newsletter today. And he has been the guy forever. He's the the pioneer of this. There would be no... I can't say there would be no inside wrestling news without Dave because once the internet started, I mean, it was inevitable this was going to happen. Kind of like when when uh, pro wrestling got on cable TV. I mean, it was just going to happen. The it way seems it like the internet and social media is the best thing ever to happen to wrestling. Uh, I don't know if I would say that, but uh, we can get into that discussion. Yeah, it's, it's helped, but I mean, realistically, wrestling today is less popular than it's ever been, and there's there's more social media today than there's ever been. So. I, I can't really say that, but anyway, Dave had a hotline for the Wrestling Observer Newsletter, and Wade Keller, who writes the Pro Wrestling Torch, had one, so I thought I had to have one, and the problem was they had bigger newsletters than me, and the startup costs and the costs overall to have a 900 number were very, very high. It's not just like you put this thing together for free and you rake in the money. Right. I mean, Costs were, it was like $500 or $1,000 to get started. I was 20 with, like, I coached gymnastics. It took forever to get the money to start it up. And were you coaching the, gymnastics as your job? I was, yeah. And were you yeah. wrestling at this time too? Uh, yeah. And and wrestling and the newsletter were not making enough money to survive. And did so. you, so did you graduate from high school and go to college or did you start working right away? I graduated from high school and I went to community college. And I knew that I wanted to be a writer. And I was there for a little over a year. And every English class that I took, I got an A in. And after a year of this, I was just sort of like, I want to be a writer. No one's ever going to ask me for any sort of, you know, did you go to college or not? It's just, can you write or not? I yeah. want to write a book. They're not going to. So I quit. I yeah. said, okay, I, can, I got an A, I can you're, write. You're losing money at that point if you're going to college. Exactly. And so I, I gave up on college, and I just decided if, if I'm going to start a business, if I'm going to be a writer, none of these things require this diploma. This was not the smartest idea, but this well, was what I had in my mind. Well, everyone glamorizes Mark Zuckerberg and Bill Gates because they dropped out of Harvard. So Sure. I dropped out of Shoreline. Yeah, you're in good company. That's right. But anyway, the whole thing with this 900 line failed. And so I, I went to work for Dave on his 900 line. It's the first audio I ever did. And it was just doing these hotline reports. And later, he got a job for IATA, which was a, it was the first online streaming radio, um, I don't know what you'd call it, like a radio uh, station? Wait, I don't know. What year was this? This was 1999. And they broadcast out of Times Square in New York. Wow. And it was an internet-only radio platform. And Dave got a job there. And because I was doing his 900 line, he asked if I would help him co-host, which I did. And that was really my first taste of, of radio. And I, I loved it. I was still making no money. I was doing this for free. What type of gymnastics were you coaching? Uh... Just gymnastics, or like I, I taught, high school kids or little kids. No, I was in an actual club. So okay. these were these were uh, I taught the the team and then like the pre-team, the kids that just wanted to be there to have fun. And so that's how I supported myself as wow. I did all of this and made no so money did, for did, a long time. Did you have a backup plan if the radio or the writing didn't work out, or were you just gonna no. go? You're gonna, you're gonna go all in. I was all in. I was all in from 1995. When I when I dropped out of, of Shoreline, it was like, I'm just going to keep doing this newsletter and I'm going to keep having a job. And I mean, I never I never had no hope, which I don't know. If, I mean, probably when I really look back and think about it, it's like, man, you were out of your mind. Yeah. You know, I was living at home till I was 24. I had no backup plan, but I always had faith that someday I'm going to figure this business out. You know, I don't know how. But if I keep trying, I, I was always positive. I, if I keep trying, at the end of the day, I'm going to make this work and I'm going to make money. I don't know how, but if I just keep going, I will I will make money and, and this will be my my livelihood. Were, were your parents supportive? Oh, yeah. Yeah. My parents, I mean, I could have lived, I could be living at home right now and they would have been fine. But to go back to your main question, That's, it no, probably... Sorry, I keep interrupting with questions because this That's fine. you're unraveling like a very fascinating story. 
It's very long, so I'm trying to go quick. Yeah, no, I keep and I keep deterring you, but that's that's what listeners like is the the peeling of the onion. Sure, but the the point of the whole story is <laughs> it was not until probably 2007 that I really figured out the audio thing, because the newsletter was not making a lot of money all the way through 2005, and the fact that it wasn't making money was the main reason I went online because I was trying to mail out a print newsletter in 2005. Right. And it was, and my brother said, dude, why don't you just send out an email newsletter and save all the money or just do a website? And I was like, hey, let's do the website. And he put the whole thing together and we made a subscription website just for the newsletter. And, and I remember he said something to me like, you know, we've got this website. Why don't you just do some podcasts? This was in 2005. And I didn't know what they were really. Right. I, mean, I just said I was still doing the radio show, but not making any money. And so we put these podcasts. You're doing the, you're doing the radio show with Dave. Uh yeah, yeah. And this was this was for Byline. And so we put up a couple of of podcasts, and the next thing I know, all of the readers were more into the podcast than the newsletter. Yeah. And after a few months of this, it was sort of like, here we go. Yeah. All in on the on the on the podcast, and that's really what turned everything around. Really, everything around were were those podcasts. We got them on iTunes, and they were back, members only. And back then, the iTunes podcasts were few and far between. So oh yeah, you... it was a struggle to get that thing on iTunes. Yeah, but the whole business plan was put out a free podcast every week, directing people to the paid podcast, and we signed up so many people through that system. Really, and the rest is history. You're old school. I mean, this is stuff that people are just now learning about. You give away free content, and then you charge people a subscription model for the premium. Oh, yeah, 2005. Yeah. But part of it wasn't so much that I was brilliant, but it was more like, I got to make some money. Yeah. You know what I mean? I, 2005 was the closest I ever came to just going, dude, you got to work for your dad's fence company or something, you know? And and when we when we opened the website and opened the subscription area and started the iTunes to paid subscription model, I mean, all of a sudden, for like the first time, I was making money. And then it was kind of like, huh, okay, let's keep going. So what was it like from 98 to 05 as far as just keeping going? Because a lot of people that I interview, they have these moments where you look at them and they're really successful and it's six, seven years in the making. Oh, yeah. And people's narratives sometimes are revisionist where they forget that they actually had this terrible stretch of of struggle. And so what was it like motivating yourself to keep going? Because you sound like you're a fairly optimistic person. Yes. To... It's just it's it's you 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 don't give up and you you accept. Um, my wife, when she started her nonprofit, I mean, I've known her for a long time. But uh, I don't think she knew exactly the whole struggle that I had for a long time. And so early on when she started it, she was very frustrated that it was taking so long and she was putting her own money into it. And and I hear this from people all the time. And the old saying, it takes 10 years to become an overnight success. I mean, that is a fact. I mean, when when people look at the things that I've done with this website, this did not come overnight. I mean, for, for 10 years, I was living at home. I was making very little money coaching gymnastics. I was I was struggling to make it with the, the newsletter and the hotline, the pain of this hotline when this thing went wrong. It sounds painful. Oh, my God. The, the story I could tell you about this 900 line, I mean, you would have to have been a positive person to keep going because this was just like a disaster. But all of these things, it was just, for, for whatever reason, and I don't even know why, I just never gave up, and I knew that at the end it would pay off. And this was years of pain. This was not, you know, it was tough for two years, and then all of a sudden there was yeah. money right there. No, this was 10 years of living at home when all of my friends were out living by themselves and, and not paying rent to my parents even. They were letting me stay for free. That's how little money I was making. And just, I, I kept, I would read every book about business. I would think of everything that I could possibly think of. There was one day when I was doing IATA and I was making no money. And I was doing this show five days a week for no money. Which show? IATA, okay. the online, the, the 
And, and I know that Dave was making plenty of money. And all of these hosts were making plenty of money because IATA was losing millions on, on this deal before they went out of business. And I'm making no money, but I just kept doing it for free because I thought it might pay off. And one day, Dave contacted me and said, I talked to them, and, and we're going to be able to get you, I think it was $200 a week. And I was like, oh, my God. That's it. I'm rich. You got yeah, the $200 a week. I thought I was rich. And so after the check started coming in, and I was like, this is like the greatest thing ever. I'm making $200 every week with this. I drove to a local apartment complex. I didn't even tell my parents. Yeah. I drove there. I signed the papers. I got an apartment. You moved out. I, I drove home that night. And I said, Mom, I moved out. She's like, all right. Didn't, you know, no question, nothing. So I move out and it wasn't, God, it had to have been like a month. Yada went out of business. Oh, wow. No more checks. No way. And that's the whole reason I moved out was that Yada money. And, and that was kind of one of those things where I didn't move back home, but... I had to hustle. And I remember there was an infomercial that I watched. I don't recommend this to everybody, but I watched one of those late night infomercials. And I think it was that, um, was it Don LaPree or somebody? I think he eventually killed himself. He was, uh, but, but the point is, uh, somebody had done an infomercial and they said, I remember one time when I had no money and I went out and I bought a Porsche that I couldn't afford. And all of a sudden I had these payments and it motivated me to uh, work yeah. harder to pay right. this off which is like, don't do this, everybody. No. But when I did move out and I had an $800 a month rent that I had to pay and then I lost the IATA job, I mean, that really did motivate me to hustle because I had to make up that $800 now. And, and it did help a little bit, but the story, the long story short is it was just a struggle for a decade. And if you're, if you're trying to get something going and like it's not immediately working, you're not immediately making money, I mean, this doesn't happen with people. I mean, if you're one of the lucky one in five million, you'll come up with an idea, you'll start it, and you'll make money. But other than that, it takes a long, long time, and you just have to keep going. I feel like I'm some goofy motivational speaker. No, but, but this, it's, is a, this is a fact. It you is. You just got to keep going. So now that you're successful and you've built a great following, you have all these different platforms to reach people, what's your perspective like for people that are starting out and giving people opportunities? Do you think it affects how you help others because you in what, struggled in what sense well you struggled to get a break and to get an opportunity and now there's millions of people that are aspiring to to have podcasts and websites and be writers and it's easier now in some ways in people's minds because they think that they can access it's like just there's everyone has a, mic a blog and yeah everyone has a microphone right everyone thinks because they have a microphone they can get to the next level but do you feel like you help people more or is it is it affected you at all with okay, that guy's like me. He just needs sort of an opportunity to actually, you know, get a platform or or not. Well, I mean, I don't do a lot of interviews like the one you're doing here. Most, most times when people interview me, they just ask me about wrestling and mixed martial arts. So sometimes people email me and they say, I'm doing this. What do you recommend? I, I There was a guy from a local newspaper that did a story on me when we when Observer Live expanded. Do you, do you like interviews like these? I love them. Yeah. But, I mean, he did a story on me, and then the next day he got back to me and he said, so I'm doing this sports website, and could you take a look at it and, and give me some advice? And I was like, sure, it's great. I don't do, I mean, people don't ask me about this stuff a lot, but I still, to this very day, I have an outside job. Because a long time ago, when, when I was starting to make a little bit of money, I emailed a friend of mine and I said, I'm, I'm, probably gonna quit my job now and this person said don't you'll go crazy like even if you made a billion dollars have something on the outside that will keep you a normal person right so otherwise you're gonna get completely wrapped up in this and you're gonna lose your mind so to this day i, I run a jujitsu school down the uh street from us and and when you do jujitsu it's it's a 10 year i just got my black belt yeah congratulations like I, I saw that yeah, it was 10 years. I, I trained for like 3,500 hours over 10 years to get this belt. And so so when I when I see like training jiu-jitsu is, is just like the struggle to make it in a business. You get frustrated. You think that it's not going to work. And so really all of the speeches that I, I would give to you today, 
I basically tell the same thing to everybody who's training. It's like, if, if you're frustrated with this jujitsu, like just keep going, just right. training. It, it doesn't happen overnight. You're never going to regret it. You know, w- when you train 10 years and you finally get that black belt, you will never regret it. But if you give up because you're frustrated and you quit, you're never going to get it. And you're always going to regret it. So so that's where I really do my speeches. It's not even about business, it, but it's the same thing. It's the same philosophy. It's a long journey and you just keep going. You find a way to, you have a family, you had a kid, uh, you hurt your arm, you blah, blah, blah. Find a way to just keep going because in the end it will pay off and you won't be sad about it. And so now that you've, you know, you've gone through the dip and you've, like, what's your week like? Imagine it's just nonstop. We've talked a little bit about, you know, working on your honeymoon and, you know, actually working at 1 p.m. or 1 a.m. Pacific Standard Time after Raw on Mondays. Are you traveling a lot? And how no. does the... No, you do I most of it. I don't travel. Really? I, I stay home a lot. I mean, my day is now really, I, I wake up in the morning. I go through all the news. I do Observer Live at noon. And then I have a little bit of a break to do whatever. I We usually go to the gym about 2.30. And then from there, it's class. I still go and teach the kids' class. Uh, that's Tuesday, Thursday, Friday at about 4 o'clock. I do the kids' class. I come back home for a little bit, and then I go to the adult class. I go to the adult class. I come back home. I go through the news again. I get ready for the evening podcast. I do the podcast, and then I go to bed. I mean, that's my day, like, every single day. And... What does help is I have a whole radio studio right here. Yeah. And over the last 10 years, I've spent a preposterous amount of money on them just because I've tried things, I've gotten rid of things. I've bought new things, I've gotten rid of things. But the whole point of it is I want this podcast to sound the best it possibly can, and I don't want to have to do any extra work. Like earlier when you were talking about, i got to get a guy to edit, i got to get a guy to make it sound good. I mean – when when I do my podcast, I hit the record button. I have I have no filters. I have nothing. I hit the record button. I do the whole podcast. I hit the stop button, and I'm immediately getting ready to upload it. There's zero post production right. because of all of the money that I put into making it sound good without having to deal with that. That saves me time. That was an investment to save me time. I don't have to record a show and then spend an hour trying to to get it to you know, and I, I did that specifically so I would have more time. And that has, has I've tried to streamline all sorts of things. So, if, so you, if never, someone, you never go to the events? You never go to WrestleMania or I'm the... I'm going to WrestleMania this year. But I will? don't go to, to events like on a daily basis. So you cover it more as an observer, like a fan? Yeah. I, I sit at home and I watch. I try to have a perspective of a normal fan. I still talk to all sorts of people in wrestling to try and find out what really did happen. Like, there was a Ring of Honor pay-per-view. Guy got hurt. I talked to people to try to find out what happened and, you know, why did the main event go like this? I, I do all of that stuff to give people the inside news, but mostly I'm watching everything from home. It's very hard to be traveling and all the time. So you're the, in some ways, you're a voice of a fan who has I a, try to be. a platform. I try to be the voice of a fan, but also tell the fans what the heck's going on. And do you think that's why people, it resonates, your show, because you tell people behind the scenes, but also as a fan, you're watching and consuming? I think so. Uh, the, the one thing I hear more than anything else is, is I, I love your show because now I don't have to watch the show. Oh, interesting. You know, Raw is three hours long every Monday. Three hours. And it's not even very good most of the time these days. So a lot of people don't watch it. They wake up Tuesday. They listen to the podcast. They find out what we thought was either very good or very bad. And then they go to their DVR and they watch that stuff. Oh, no way. Yeah. And and so we're that's the service that we provide. So the, the pain of watching. Does the so, WWE see value in what you do? Oh no, they they will never. We've never had active WWE guests. They will not allow it. Uh, it's it's either guys that are done with WWE or guys in in independent groups that are cool with having their guys on shows. Why is that? I don't know. They don't work with anybody. But you think the fans they would love to have you on board as. A partner because you're a champion of even though you're critical you're still a champion of wrestling well their their whole thing <laughs> we almost had somebody on one day and somebody in the company listened to an observer live show we did which the funny thing was it was a pretty positive podcast all things considered but they didn't like it 
we'd had some negative things to say about them. And they wrote this long email about, why would we let anybody on your show when you're so negative about our kind blah, 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 blah. And I was like, dude, okay, I don't need your guys on the show. I've been doing this for 20 years with no help from WWE. This show is on Sirius and Violet. I mean, we'll help you if you want, but I'm not going to sit here and talk about how this show was good when this stuff was not good. Yeah. Okay? I'm not going to lie about it. I don't need the. I don't need to lie about everything just to get some guests that are just going to tow the company. You're long. doing fine without them. Yeah, I'm doing fine without them. But I mean, I've said this before. For WWE, if they want to tell me to go jump off a bridge, that's their prerogative because they don't need me. Right. They're doing great. But but sometimes there are promotions that are really really struggling. Like TNA is really struggling right now, and I'm not going to sit here and say, I could save TNA by, by giving them promotion on my show. That would be ridiculous. It's not going to happen. But they probably could use a little help. But trying to work with them to get a guest is just such a nightmare that, fine, go do your thing with no help whatsoever. It doesn't harm me in any way. And, and you know, just you know, go do whatever you want. But I do think that, that we could help some promotions a little bit, just getting the word out. And and we do for a lot of promotions, but others are, are very, oh, the Observer, we will not work with the Observer. We cannot be on the Observer show. And that's fine with me. You know, I've, I've 20 years, I've, I've had no help from the major promotions. For what you do, you don't, you don't need access to the events. You don't need access to the talent. No. It was funny when, when UFC first started and, uh, and they were really picking up steam in the early, in the mid-2000s. And there were a lot of websites that were covering UFC. And sometimes UFC would cut off access, like backstage access or whatever, to a, to a company. And boy, the, these, these websites would have these freakouts. Like, oh my God, cutting off access. We will no longer cover you and all this stuff. It's just like, welcome to my life for 15 years. Yeah. You, know? you can still cover, I can still cover WWE just fine without official word from people and, and, you know, Vince McMahon coming on the show. In some ways, it's better because you know when you bring them on the show, you know what they're going to say. You know yep. they're not going to answer the questions that, that fans want them to answer. You know that they're going to toe the company line. I can do it just as effectively without that access. It's very similar to people that work at ESPN and cover pro baseball or pro basketball. They want access to athletes and coaches, so they're never going to actively challenge them on air or in their writing, because if they piss off the coach of the Lakers, they're not going to get in the locker room. Exactly. So writers at Deadspin or writers on blogs can actually judge based on what they see versus the access that they need to do their job. And honest to God, I mean, in the rare times that I've got to interview someone who is actively with WWE. Who who have those people been? Uh, we, we went to like a, uh, uh, the, the, the network launch in Las Vegas. And we got a little bit of time with like John Cena, mm -hmm. and we got a little bit of time with Steve Austin, um, and and every once in a great while, like I had Booker T on my show once, but it wasn't through WWE. He was working there at the time, but it was his publishing company got me the interview, so I kind of skirted around him that way. And nothing against Booker T's interview, but when people work for WWE, they're scared, and they never really have a lot to say. And the best interviews I've ever done are with independent guys who aren't with WWE and they're not with TNA or even RO and they're just struggling to get along and they have great insight and they've got great stories. And a lot of times those are the best interviews. The best interviews I do are, are with people that aren't all the way up at the very top right. because those people are scared and they don't want to say anything. It's people that have left and, and they're like, I'm done with this company. I got stuff to say. Yeah. Like, those are good interviews. So do you do you ever have uh, Jim Ross then or Stone Cold? He was on Cold? yesterday. He was okay. Yeah, he was on yesterday. He was very good. And so he's a podcaster. What other podcasters do you have on on your show? I had uh, I've had Jericho on the show. We've had Steve Austin on the show. We've had uh, Ross on the show. Uh, who else is doing podcasts right now? Uh, Piper, a long time ago, I had on the show. How is the podcasting community amongst the wrestling world? Are you guys all together and you collaborate on each other's shows, or is it more siloed? Um, I mean, I've been on Ross's show 
Uh, Dave has been on Steve Austin's show. Um, I think Dave's been on Jericho's show as well. Uh, I mean, everybody needs guests. Yeah. But, uh, you know, people say, you know, what podcast do you listen to, Brian? I don't listen to any. Right. Because I just don't have time. You know, all, all I do is is my own shows. Well, it's also easy to get burned out. I find if I listen to too many podcasts, then I, and I'm doing my own, I get it so burned out mentally. Yeah. Like I'm in too many people's headphones and I'm in, they're in my headphones. And well, I, just, I, I mean, I have people that every day they're listening to me. Yeah. Which is a scary thought. Yeah, but what's, that, that is, what, what's that like besides being scary? I don't know. It's just, it's just kind of, uh, when I do a show, uh, there's always the part of me in my head that thinks 10 people are listening. Mm-hmm. That's it. You know what I mean? And like sometimes, I mean, when I do the Brian and Vinny show, I, I have a bunch of different podcasts and I run each of them differently because the Brian and Vinny show, we play songs, we talk to my grandmother, we laugh, there's a lot of profanity. Uh, and then for with the show with Dave, it's very analytical. I mostly just throw it to Dave and he talks and I throw it to Dave and he talks and I throw it to Dave and I, I don't jump in an awful lot. It's just, this is Dave's show. Let him do his thing. Uh, Wrestling Observer Live is a little more general. But the point of this is everybody has something different that they want. Like there was a thread the other day on the board. Someone said, Brian and Vinny should just quit, right? Because he really doesn't like the show. And it's like, great. Listen to Wrestling Observer Radio. There's yeah. a show you like. There are plenty of people that love the Brian and Vinny show and don't listen to other ones. So I try to give a different kind of show. So, yeah, everybody can listen to me every day in their headphones. I love that. I want that. I want this to be a habit for people. But you don't have to listen to every single one of the shows. You may not like all of the different shows. But if there's one that kind of is your cup of tea, you should have something most days. Right. And then as far as your major moneymaker than the site, as far as just bringing home to keep oh, your yeah. lights on the, oh, yeah. the, the yeah. and that's a, a password you have to subscribe and pay membership. Yeah, I dues. mean, we've got 7,000 shows in the archives. So wow. every, every single show that I do, the observer live show, the observer radio shows, the free shows that go over the air when they're over, they're in the archives. Mm-hmm. So if you like observer live, but you miss a show or it doesn't work in your schedule, sign up and you get all of them and, and you can, you know, podcast them, download them, whatever. That that's the biggest, that's the biggest thing by far. What about sponsorships? We have a shockingly, <laughs> there's probably people listening to this right now getting ready to email me go, let me help you out here. Sponsorships are like virtually non-existent. I mean, we've, we've got, we've got advertising on the site. We have a lot of brand people that, you know, in marketing and business listening. Yeah. Well, the thing with wrestling, it is the same thing with WWE. Ad rates for wrestling. I mean, they're lower than for anything. Raw gets, you know, three and a half million viewers, and you can find a show that gets a million doing better ad rates than WWE because there's a stigma. There's a stigma, yeah. So it's kind of the same thing with us. I mean, we got banner ads. We got a lot of we got a lot of different advertising. But I mean, when you compare it to like the subscription numbers, it's it's really like a drop in the bucket. So we do the best we can, but like we're doing just fine with subscriptions. Are you interested in ads or is it just? Oh, yeah, it is. Sure. Yeah. Absolutely. But it's, it's, we've just traditionally had a tough time getting real sponsors for a wrestling podcast That's and so radio funny. show and website. And then do you, uh, like when you wrestled, did you imagine that you would have this career as a podcaster or as a content maker? Well, when I wrestled, I knew that I was small and I knew that it was painful. How tall are you? Uh, five, seven. Okay. 150 right now. So I, I did it because I thought, okay, people used to always, wrestlers used to always say, ah, these dirt sheet writers, you know, they, they write about wrestling, but they've never been in the the ring. And I was always thinking the smartest guy I know in wrestling is Dave Meltzer and he's Mm -hmm. never been in a ring. Yeah. But I thought, okay, first off, I love wrestling and I wanted to do it because it was fun, but it was also a way to, when I did my newsletter, you want to say I've never been in the ring? Guess what? I have. Okay. I've been in the ring for 10 years or whatever. Was that part of the motivation? Was to yeah. get some credit? And, and I never wanted to go to WWE. I never wanted to go to a big promotion. I wanted to have fun. I wanted to do it locally. I wanted it to be an extra cool, fun thing that I did. But it was never, I never for one moment thought, 
someday I'll put this newsletter in radio shows and I'm going to go into wrestling for WWE because I knew I would be dead. What My was body the... would fall apart. I died. <laughs> what was the league you were in? Uh, just everything around here. There was Portland Wrestling. There was International Championship Wrestling. There was the Pacific Wrestling Federation. Just all the local indie groups, Washington, Oregon, and, and British Columbia. And my whole goal was, I just want to be good at wrestling. And and that's it. I want to have fun. I want to try and do it and, and, and be good at it if I can. I was not the best wrestler in the world, but I wanted to be good. That was my motivation. And, and that was it. And so now that you've got all i mean now you've you've solidified yourself as a voice in the industry do you think you'll move on to a a platform for video or would you ever want to be on television or uh, there... yeah, man. Nah. video i i don't uh uh i mean people always say hey do a video podcast and this is nothing against people to do video podcast but whenever people ask me to do video podcast it's kind of like why no one's going to watch it. Well, yeah, what are you going to watch? Me yeah. talking into a mic? Like, right. how is it any different than listening to it? Yeah. If it's in your headphones, you can you can be on Mount Everest. But 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 for video, it's like you got to you got to watch it. Like, why? I don't get it. I feel the same way. Like I'll give you a picture of me and you can look at it and listen. <laughs> right. Is that the same thing? Right. Nothing yeah. exciting ever happens like when no. you're looking at me. No, nothing. It's called it's radio for a reason. Yeah. And so, the, <laughs> so what do you think in five years your business will be? Do you think you'll have more shows or do you think you'll actually have more advertisers? Will the website change at all or do you think it's going to be consistent? Well, uh, I mean, our subscriber numbers are higher right now than they've ever been. And um, it, it's above what I was always like. I've always, I always kind of have benchmark goals of where I want it to be. And I had a benchmark goal for WrestleMania this year. And uh, it, it was a pretty lofty goal. Like when I, when I, my, my brother-in-law, who's, who's in with the business, he does all the website stuff. I think it was back in November. I said, um, we're going to have this number by Mania. He's like, dude, you're out of your mind. And I said, I got ideas. And we had a couple of, we had a, we had a, a discounted special. We had a couple of other ideas. Anyway, we're like way past it already. It's not even mania. Oh, nice. And uh, so when we went way past it, I was just sitting there thinking, this WWE network has a million subscribers worldwide. And then I looked at the number we had and it was like, come on, dude. Like, why are you setting your sights on a goal that like, realistically, you should be able to do double what you're thinking right now is, is a good number. Maybe even, I don't even know, triple, quadruple. Like I look at that WWE network number and granted it is WWE. I will never get near that number. But when I look at our numbers, it's kind of like, man, you can, you can. So, so that's my goal. Like if I could do exactly what I'm doing right now, not change anything in terms of number of shows or anything and, and expand it like the number of subscribers, I would be happy as can be. Yeah. Cool. So it's really, it's just expansion. Yeah. I've got so, everything. I mean, I, I've spent a lot of time. I've got everything I need in the studio. I really like the schedule I'm on right now. We're kind of getting into a groove. I mean, there there are other enhancements. I mean, we're going to revamp the website. There's a lot of things we're going to do. But in terms of, I just want to make what we're doing better and available to more people. That mm -hmm. That's my goal for right now. And you have an advantage because you've been doing this for so long that your voice is more well-known than someone who jumps in tomorrow and tries sure. to do something similar. Yeah. And if you came to my house right now and you, you went through my day, I mean, it would look, it would look pretty easy, but that was 20 years of, of making it look this easy. And it's never easy. I mean, you've done podcasts. I mean, when you have 10,000 podcasts in the, you know, it's still not going to be like, Oh, I can just wake up and, and sleep through this thing. It's never like that. It's always hard, but it definitely is way easier now than it's ever been. And I, I've streamlined it in such a way that if you did come over to my house, you'd be like, man, he just like gets up, boom, done. It's uploaded. I mean, this is, I mean, anybody could do this. Yeah. But it, it's not, I mean, it was a lot of hard work to make it appear that way. Great. Before we go, we have to talk a little bit of uh, 80s, 90s wrestling which was my era of, 
I don't watch WWE. What's that? Most people's era. Yeah, I don't watch as much anymore. Uh, I went to, I think SummerSlam was what I went to last. It was at the Staples Center in LA with, uh, who's the guy I won? Uh, the Brian? Is it Nathaniel? Who's the guy, Brian? The Nathaniel Bryan guy? Oh, Daniel Bryan. Daniel Bryan, yeah. He lost. He lost. He won, but then he lost at the end because some guy came out of the crowd and pinned him on some it like. Sounds like every episode of Monday Night Raw ever. And the fans were so uh, mad about it, and oh, it yeah. seemed like people were dissatisfied in general that the storylines just didn't make sense and weren't leading towards the crowd. Um, but the era of like '90s, '80s. I so my most favorite match ever was uh, was Hulk Hogan versus Under the Giant in WrestleMania three. Yep. Where Hulk picks up the giant and he falls back on Hulk. And I think they got to a three count. That's but, right. The, but the they, infamous, was that a three count or not? But but Hulk was going to win the match regardless. Yes. So what, what what's a quintessential match from that era in your mind? From like For the, me personally or just you, in general? You personally. I uh, was a big fan of the Ultimate Warrior. Yeah. That's what got me into wrestling, believe it or not. Because I was a skinny guy and he was a big, strong guy. And so... I was like, man, if I lift some weights, maybe I'll look like this guy someday. Yeah. Which I'm still working on, and I'm nowhere close. But that was what I thought when I was a little kid. I didn't understand anything about steroids or anything like that. He was a he was a positive motivator for me. You know, as a little kid, it was just like lift weights, look like warrior. So I really liked him. But then within about three years, I could really discern the guys that were good and the guys that were terrible. And so that's when I got into Bret Hart, Shawn Michaels, Mr. Perfect, smaller guys who were who were athletic and had really, really good matches. And so like Mr. Perfect and Bret Hart at SummerSlam and all of Shawn Michaels' big matches moving into the 90s. And I mean, these were the matches that really, to me, when I was growing up, like I would put in the videotape and the VCR for you older fans that know what a VCR is, and I would rewind that thing over and over and over and watch the match over and over again. And there's so much wrestling today that I can barely remember what happened on Raw Monday. But if you put Mr. Perfect versus Kurt Hennig from SummerSlam in in a in a VCR or on the WWE Network right now, I could call that match yep. move for move from Absolutely. the very I've been watching years. Right. But man, I I just watched that stuff over and over again or like SummerSlam, or uh was it a uh, wrestlemania 5 or hulk hogan and the warrior savage yeah oh, that was six was warrior that was six the warrior and hogan yeah. and then five was savage and hogan yep. move for move i can remember these matches all these epic epic matches oh yeah and that's just that's the golden era yeah and, and even today like one of the cool things about the podcast is when you have two to three a day how much can you say about raw crying out loud so my buddy Vinny and I, we go on the network and oh, nice. we pull up. We've been watching all of the old Nitros in order from the beginning. Oh, that's great. And reviewing them with hindsight, which it, this is like the best stuff we do all week. You watch all of this old stuff that you remember from when you were a kid and you're looking at it with new eyes. And it's crazy the things that you thought. And then when you look back, I mean, there were some guys back then. You remember the big boss man? Oh, of course. From Cobb County, Georgia. Oh, yeah. When I was watching The Big Boss Man in 1996, I was like, why is The Big Boss Man on TV? This guy is no good. He sucks. I can't believe that I'm... And now I go back and it's like, Big Boss Man would have been one of the best guys in WWE today. He was great. Yeah. And it's it's amazing to look back at some of this in hindsight. And There are guys that you didn't appreciate them at the time. There are guys that you, you didn't realize how great they were at the time. There are guys that you thought were all right that you look back and you think, oh, my God, this guy sucked. Well, who are some ones that are underappreciated? Oh, man. Well, I mean, the first one is the big boss man. Um, even guys, I mean, Vinny would kill me if you heard me say this right now, but Ed Leslie, the former Brutus Beefcake, I mean, I used to think that he was beyond horrible. And he was he's still kind of horrible, but he's he's a lot better than I thought he was. Is this before he became the barber? This was when, no, this was after. This was when he was... The booty man. The booty man. And even like the macho man, Randy Savage. I mean, everybody remembers Randy Savage. Oh, Miss but, Elizabeth. I mean, yeah. He... But when you think of him, you remember like his catchphrase and his elbow. Oh, yeah. Exactly. But when I go back and watch him in 1995, this guy was such a great wrestler. He was. He was and so this athletic. Is in 96. So imagine if I went back and started watching his 80s stuff. Well, he was always. He was always jumping off the top turnbuckle. Very athletic. Him and Ricky Steamboat and uh, 
people like that were always getting into big fights where they were like taking it outside the ring and yep. jumping off the top rope onto the floor. Oh yeah. And that was back before that was a common thing. Oh yeah. Yeah, you he know, was he was so good. I totally there's so many guys that I underappreciated them at the time. And looking back it's just man. I don't want to sound like an old guy, but it's very different today. Everybody yeah. everybody in wrestling today does the exact same match. They're all learning the same stuff, they're all taught the same stuff. Even if you were somewhere else and you come to WWE, they reprogram you to work the same way. And and it can be very sometimes you watch Raw and it's like, God, this three hours is so boring. It's just the right. same match over and over. You go back to the eighties and nineties and everybody was different. Or like ravishing Rick Rude. Yep. You know, you had these great wrestlers. These and their personalities like transcended the wrestling. Yeah. And their mic work and just, you know, the sexualization of Rick Rude, I remember. My mom was in the room watching once, and she's like, what, what is this? And she wasn't even <laughs> surprised about the violence of the wrestling. It was more like how like, over-sexualized he was. Oh, yeah. And yeah. Mr. Mr. Perfect, yeah, all these great personalities, and, and they were medium-sized characters, Bret Hart especially, the hitman. Yep. So, yeah, that's, what do you think? That's the of, biggest difference today is just it, everything was – everybody was so different back then. And you, the tag – there was, there was a wrestler for everybody. And the tag team matches, you know, you yep. had – all these great teams like the British Bulldogs and the Hart Foundation that really everyone had one of their everyone had a favorite tag team. Mm-hmm. And they were just guys that only did that. They didn't wrestle solo. Yeah, it's not like today where you take two random guys, you team them up for 6 months and then you break them up and nobody cares. It yeah. was just uh it was a different business. I don't want to denigrate today's business cuz there's a lot of great stuff, especially when you get outside WWE, but the the main WWE product today is very homogenized. It's it's Everybody looks the same. They do the same promos. And and I wish we could go a little bit further back to where, I've said this a million times, you got to be a little bit crazy to get into wrestling. And so if you let every single person who gets into wrestling just kind of be themselves, the old, their personality turned up to 10, it would be a way more interesting business than when you when everybody has to be a clone. And, and you give everybody a character that often is not who they are. Right. And, and you get what you have today. Well, it's a lot more corporate now. Back then, people were doing it for the sake of wrestling because there wasn't the big payday. There wasn't – you couldn't be a personal brand. You know, you didn't have social media. I feel like now you can almost become, like, more famous than back then. It was just, like, a game, you know? It's like – Yeah, it, it's it's different. I mean, we could talk for three hours on social media. But yeah. if, if you use social media the right way, it can help you. I don't think it's going to turn your business around to a huge degree. But the problem, especially in all forms of entertainment, is there's so many people that use it the wrong way. And when I was a kid, there were a lot of wrestlers that I thought, this man is larger than life. This man must be a millionaire and live in right. a mansion. And you go on Twitter today, and this guy's a geek. You know what yeah. I mean? How many times have I gone on Twitter and just went, this guy's an idiot? Yeah. You know? Just exposing himself as a geek. When, when Had there not been a Twitter... He probably would still have a superstar aura that he has destroyed with social media. Right, like he has—he was a character, and then you see the real person. Yeah, and that, like that ruins the. And it's all forms of entertainment. There, there's so many guys that. I mean, I, I think they'd be making a lot more money if they still had that special aura about them that they didn't expose by going on Twitter and acting like an idiot. True. <laughs> Do you like the movie The Wrestler? It's pretty good. Yeah. It's a very good movie, and, and uh, I mean, a spot-on. Uh, Mickey Rourke was spot-on. Yeah, he nailed it. Oh, yeah. I wrestled yeah. a million Mickey Rourkes back in the late 90s. They were everywhere. And now you're a smart man behind the microphone. I don't know about that, but... And, but at least you're smart, and you're, you work from home versus in I'm the in ring. I'm in one piece, you're, and what, I work from home. Your back so. doesn't hurt anymore. Well, Actually, this... yeah, I'm, I'm, my body feels great. Oh, really? Yeah, that it, it's funny because I did the fake stuff, so to speak, for a decade. And then around 2005, I got into jujitsu, where people really do, they try to kill you. <laughs> you know, they're just yeah, trying yeah, to tear that, your arm off and everything. And boy, my body feels way better doing that than pro wrestling. Really? Far, far few. Every major injury I've got was pro wrestling. I've never got a major injury in jujitsu. So faking it actually hurts you more than really doing it. Yeah, people don't like the term faking it, but I always just use that to make People understand what People it understand. Was. It's choreographed. It's, yeah, it's very, very painful. I, I didn't think that when I was eight years old, but, you know, that's, yeah. what, and that's what you guys do so well is you talk about the actual business side of it, not just 
like, hey, this is real. <laughs> sure, we were beyond the real fake thing. Like we, but the WWE went on for so many years thinking as if we didn't understand that it was fake. Yes. Like with bad ambulance chases. And, and you know, what's, you know, what's so ironic is I go to wrestling shows for WWE nowadays, like the house shows, and we're now in an era where they assume that everybody knows it's real. And I still go to shows, and there's plenty of people that you listen to, and it's like, does this person know this really? is not on the level? Yeah, it's crazy. It's crazy. I, I remember Ricky Steamboat got hit off the top turnbuckle by maybe Macho Man. Yep, on, right the, the neck. Yeah, and they had the doctors come on. Oh, yeah. And they were. I was seriously concerned that something had, like his larynx was smashed. Yeah, they crushed his larynx, they called it. Yeah, the larynx, and they couldn't actually, like, at that point, though, you had no idea. And then you'd always hear rumors. It really happened. You know, people would spread oh, yeah. it, you know, pre-internet. But but nowadays they just choreograph it and they pretend. I, I can't believe people actually think it's real. But well, the funny thing about this that is, is this is, is America. <laughs> a lot of people our age, you ask, what's the first thing you remember from wrestling? And they mentioned Ricky Steamboat and, and Randy Savage and the Ring Bell. And if you go back in time and look at that, my God, that was serious. You know, they they took him out on the stretcher. They would have interviews for months. He'd have this thing. Hey, he didn't yeah. know he was going to wrestle again. And nowadays, there there was just a couple of months ago, this guy, Dean Ambrose, allegedly got his larynx crushed in a match. He's back that week. Yeah. And he, he wasn't raspy. Nothing. Oh, yeah. He's just back. And it's kind of like nobody cares about anything nowadays because well, they're not allowed to. And there was a drama around it. Yeah. And the, you know, every a soap opera, you know, every week you turn in and. Like Bobby the Brain Heenan would do something and get a neck brace because he'd be mm-hmm. hurt in the ring. And then somehow Hogan would take the neck brace off and choke slam him. And yeah. it just was like a month long, you know, campaign to actually tell the story. And then they'd go in Piper's pit and then they would talk about the feud they were having. Yep. It just seemed like, every, and it was less, like your, to your point, there was less content. You well, know, it was, it was, yeah, it was much easier back then because you didn't have five hours of first run TV every week. I mean, nowadays, it's just like you cycle through these storylines so quick. Nobody remembers half of them. It's just produce television, produce, produce, produce. It's a different business. They make all their money off, not all their money, but they make so much money off television rights fees that their whole business model today is just, you know, promote, promote, TV, 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 TV. And back then it was like, we use our TV. Back then, actually, it was similar to the podcasting model that I do. You, You air free television. And you shoot an angle, and you try to use that free product to get people to buy a ticket to a show, buy right. a pay-per-view, buy this, buy that. It was a very different business than it is nowadays. That's right. And they only had four pay-per-views a year, if that. Yep. Yeah, I remember Saturday night, they had Saturday night main event. Yep. Which was sometimes in place of Saturday Night Live. I remember like being in my parents' bedroom, just saying, please let me stay up to watch Mr. Wonderful in a cage match versus Hulk Hogan. That's right. And I remember being at the foot of their bed, just they would fall asleep and so happy that I could watch it for the entire hour. Oh, yeah. And that, and that was the exclusive content that you wouldn't get on Saturday mornings or, yeah. you know, at that point, Monday night was a studio show with Gorilla Monsoon. And, you know, he was a host that sat behind prime a desk. Primetime wrestling. Yeah, primetime wrestling. I love that show. Yeah. And it was really a, a different era. And you wouldn't get the big matches every week. They would yeah. only come at the pay-per-views. That's right. You'd be watching it like tonight in the main event, the Italian Stallion. Yeah. Like, yeah. The Mega Powers, Hogan and Savage are yeah. coming together. And you never, you, so you, those were highly anticipated moments that you, you had to be in front of the TV for. Yeah. And it wasn't a commodity like it is now, which is in some ways great because you get good, good matchups every week, or at least supposedly. But but that, then it was like a very special thing that it's it's so hard to replicate. Different era. It's just yeah, it's just a different time. It's it's a media corporation today, and they they gross a half billion dollars a year. But like I said, at the very beginning of this interview, like WWE is making billions or not billions, hundreds of millions of dollars, grossing hundreds of millions of dollars. But like the nationwide wrestling business is smaller than it's ever been. If you're not WWE, you're struggling. Right to, to hang on, you make a little money here, you make a little money there. It's just, um, just different. It's a monopoly. Oh yeah. You know, so and they've acquired so many other assets like WCW and yeah. So, so the competition isn't there. Yeah. Yeah. Well, this is fantastic. Thanks. I, I, any podcast I can talk about eighties or nineties wrestling, it's a good day. It's a great day. 
It's my everyday. It's your everyday. We, you're living the dream. I feel like if I had known this would have existed as a as a middle schooler, like you would have had the dream job. I imagine a lot of kids listen to your show and you know want to be you because this is like you're living this geek fantasy of a of the wrestling voice. I guess. I mean, <laughs> I, I, I yeah, I, I don't get a lot of I get a lot of I don't get a lot of people telling me that, but sometimes I do when when I'm really upset about something. People just tell me, what are you complaining about? You get to talk about <laughs> wrestling for a living. Quit complaining. Right. Yes. It's kind of like, eh, you know. Well, it's still a job. I, still, yeah, it's still a job. And I'm not going to sit here and talk about how Raw was great when it sucked. That's not yeah. my job. My job is to tell you if it sucked or not. Yeah, the voice of the fan. That's right. Cool. Well, thanks for coming on. Thanks so much for having me. I had a great time. And tell everyone where they can find uh, the your website for the all the podcasts. Uh, the main website is WrestlingObserver.com, and we're going to be having a new website soon, but for now, if you go to the right-hand side of the page, there's a giant microphone, and it says, Latest Free Radio Shows, and directly underneath that, there's Wrestling Observer Live with a link to the Sports Byline USA 24-7 stream, and we're on there every day at 3 Eastern, noon Pacific, and Sundays at 6 o'clock Eastern, 3 Pacific. It's completely free. Listen to the show. And if you like what you hear, you can consider signing up. And when you sign up, you get three shows, two to three shows every day. And there's 7,000 shows in the archives. We interview everybody in the archives. I mean, Ric Flair, Bruno Sammartino, Chris Jericho, Bret Hart. The list goes on and on. They're all in the archives. And if you like wrestling, mixed martial arts, and you love podcasts, I mean, they're is no better place anywhere in the universe than WrestlingObserver.com for you to sign up. And you're also on iTunes for the That's most right. recent shows. Yeah, search Wrestling Observer or Figure Four on iTunes, and all of our free shows go up there on iTunes as well. And then you, uh, what's your Twitter? At Brian Alvarez. And so to keep the show going, subscribe. Please. To, <laughs> Please. To help, to help pay the bills. Cause That's jiu right. Jiu-Jitsu is, is only there, you know, because it's a— it's a, it's a structural thing. It's steady. Yes. But, but we want to keep you podcasting. That's right. All right. Cool.